The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Well, the last line of that song that we just sang mentioned you and your truth causing our ransomed hearts to sing. I thank you for that possibility. You being God Almighty, being holy, 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 reigning over all the creation everywhere and seeing everything in it and knowing that we aren't remotely holy, holy, holy. It would be entirely appropriate and just for us to face wrath. And we can entertain the idea of ransomed hearts singing. A stunning truth. A gift of your grace to us who do not deserve it and did nothing to gain it. By grace alone, you ransomed hearts. Most of us here in this room probably. Not, not all, I'm sure. But most of us here know what it is to be ransomed. Know what it is then to sing. That's an amazing thing. And we say thank you, thank you, thank you. You have given to us an, an immense gift. And so I pray this morning, Lord, as we turn to your word here, that you would continue with us in a, in a spirit of understanding and in a spirit of worship, that as we have prayed and sung, that you would cause us to listen and think and sing again. To listen to and to understand and then to sing about how you have given righteousness so that we could know you. Help us to understand this, Lord. And what I mean is, would you help us to understand what we already know? Most of us here know. Cause us to, to, to sense it at, at some new level, in some new place, to sense it to wonder at it, and to rest in it delighted. Filled with a hope and a peace and a joy that is inexpressible but full of glory. Most of what's in this passage is familiar to most of us. Cause it to run and stir us. Lead us to singing. And also, Lord, I pray, would you lead us to a relinquishing attitude towards you, a letting go of some things that we should not hold on to but do. In some ways, Lord, I think what I'm praying is that you would speak to your people and, and make us clear to us. This is, I'm going to talk about some things I think we don't realize where we are sometimes in, in relation to some of these truths. And so make that clear to your people. 
and then give us grace to let go of some things. And perhaps, Lord, those who are here that don't know you, those here who have heard perhaps but have not yet seen with opened eyes, would you save? Would you bring conviction and bring hope? Move, Lord, to build your church, to honor the Son, to bless your people. Give us your spirit here in in great power for an illumining and convicting and encouraging and, and stirring work. We ask for that in Christ's name. That's what we say that and what we mean is in, in accord with his will because this is his will, that his church would be built and that through him you, Father, would be honored. So we ask in Christ's name for that. And trust you as our loving God to give it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Philippians chapter 3 and the beginning of a marvelous statement about the greatness of knowing Christ. This week and next week we'll deal with this, with this statement that is the counter to the negative that was in verses 4 to 6. Paul had been discussing, as we saw last week, his former way of looking at things, how he lived attempting to attain relationship with God and to become a recipient of God's blessings. That was his perspective, and he, he saw himself as pretty accomplished in those efforts. He knew that as he looked at himself and his person and who he was, that he had the right pedigree. He's a circumcised Jew. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he has everything in his past that would say, there is a true son of Abraham. There is a true recipient of God's blessing, of God's favor, for sure. He had the right pedigree, who he was as a person, and then he had devoted his life to living in a way that, that very carefully gave very close attention to what God required of his people. He was a Pharisee. Devoted his life to studying exactly when, where, how, to what degree, at what time God said do this. And then he did it. So carefully, so accurately, that he could say, in the end of verse 6, regards to the law, before, before the law, before what the law requires, I'm blameless, I'm faultless. I have done it. He's speaking, of course, of the external, of the behaviors of the law, but he had performed the action. So who he was in his pedigree and how he was in his performance, he had it all there. But, of course, he speaks of that in a negative context of dismissal. Because he, he doesn't want the church to think like that. He doesn't want the church to be susceptible to others who have come in to try to persuade people, persuade us to trust in who we are. The fact that we, we're from a church family, we have, we have the right educational background, we know certain things and we've done well. He doesn't want the church to think like that. And so he's trying to draw them away. Not encourage them, but discourage them, us, with his personal example. Simply saying, if, if that was important, I had everything necessary. That's the game, then I win. But it's not the game. And the next verses, our passage for this morning, change everything and move from, from that, that essentially negative appraisal that he used to have, to a, a very different one now. 
a different aspiration and different goals, a different place to put confidence. So let me sum up what we're going to look at this morning with this sentence. I'm putting it, I put it two different ways. One as, as an exhortation to us, because he's talking about put no confidence in the flesh in three and four. So if I counter that, I put it like this. Trust in the righteousness received from God in order to gain the greatest of all treasures. So put no confidence in the flesh, but instead, trust in the righteousness received from God in order to gain the greatest of all treasures. I could put that a different way, though, and look at it from God's perspective and say, God has given the righteousness we need so that we can experience the greatest of all treasures, Christ. So either as an exhortation to you, what to trust in, God's given righteousness, or just to flip it around to make sure that we understand, we, there's a, there is ground for worship here. God has given what we need. And not, we'll come to this at the very end, and not just so that we can be all clean, tidy, and right, but given what we need so that we can get Christ. That is so important. I'm, I'm giving away the end of the beginning here. The gospel is not about how do I get forgiven? How do I get righteousness? No, it's how do I get righteousness so that I can get Christ? So I can get communion with this God who is the greatest of all possible treasures. A leads to B. A is not the end. A is so that I can have him. We'll see that today. So there's ground for, for worship, not just about what's the right thing to do, where should I place my trust. It's, it's good to talk about like that, and we're going to for sure. But we've got to see it the other way too. Ground for worship. Thank God that he has given what I need so that I can get what I'm made for. So that's where we're going this morning. Trust in the righteousness received from God in order to gain the tre- greatest of all treasures. Let me read the passage. And again, I'm going to read Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11, because it is all one sustained thought here. But we're just going to be focusing on a couple of verses, 7, 8, and 9 this morning. Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, 
I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. focusing on verses 7 through 9 this morning, and I'm going to make just a couple of observations from that passage. Here's the first one. Christ is the greatest treasure you could ever hope to possess, now and forever. Christ is the greatest treasure you could ever hope to possess, now and forever. We have to start with this because it's easy to have our attention drawn to the bit about righteousness. Uh, one commentator I was reading calls it the, the, the bolt from Romans. Suddenly Paul sounds like he's writing Romans there for just a, just a verse. And that's easily, it's easy to draw our attention because, boy, there's some theological meat there. But that's not the focus. Again, that bit about the righteousness, which we're going to come to, that's the second point, is for the sake of this point. This is the goal, that you would get Christ, who is the greatest treasure you can imagine. Verses 4 to 6 outline Paul's pedigree and his resume, as we saw before, and he concludes that at the end of 6, not, not literally, of course, he knows he's going to write 7, so he knows where he's going with this, but if you will, he's, he's perched at the end of verse 6 like this. Period, as regards the law, blameless. He's got this pause of accomplishment. I'm looking over my, my sheet of, of what I have accomplished, my, my ledger, and anticipating God's judgment with a smile on my face. I look at my, my sense of accomplishment and see I have arrived and I'm okay. I have much in my favor. And then he turns at verse 7, our passage, he turns to verse 7 and to bankruptcy. In 7 and 8, the language he uses now repeatedly is financial language. It's the language of a first century P&L sheet. Profit and loss, or depending on your translation, gain and loss. He's working with financial terms here. He's thinking of it as, as investment, his ledger, his, his accounting. And what he says repeatedly in different ways, three different times, is what I thought was gain, I actually now see as loss, and what I thought was loss, I actually now see as gain. I had it all backwards. That's his point, stated consistently in different ways, three different times. Verse 7, But whatever gain I had... All that in verses 5 and 6. 
I counted as loss. And you notice something there in the, in the tenses. You probably have something as, looks like a past tense. It's not quite a past tense, but he's making a statement there about something he's concluded and settled on. I have resolved, I have come to permanently move all of these things that I had in the gain column. I have moved them over here, settled it, and underlined it. Loss. With resolve, once and for all. And then verse 8, he repeats himself twice more. Indeed, I count, slightly different expression there, I count everything as loss. So slight change. I took everything that I was banking on in verses 5 and 6, and I moved it over here to the loss column once and for all. And you know what? Everything, in fact, not just what I had, is everything, everything that everybody else out there looks at and regards as noteworthy, as, as desirable, everything that everybody else lives for, pursues, everything that I might be tempted by, tempted to lean on, to, to bank on, to count on, to look at as desirable and good, everything I count, not just once and for all, but I count it all as loss. So I've got resolve and I've got con- con- Continuity, continuing reckoning. All. It's getting wide. Then again, third time, verse 8. In fact, I have suffered the loss of all things. I've given away my life. I've written off me. Another place he might say, died to myself. Everything that I was living for and everything that I have pursued, it's all gone. I regard it all as lost, in fact, as rubbish, which is a strong word. That word could be translated as dung. It could also be translated simply as street refuse. The, the waste, the rotting, decaying stuff that civilizations forever past, have just thrown out into the street to get rid of. And it stinks, and it rots, and it becomes this squishy mess in in the gutter. That's how Paul, once and for all, resolved, and then day by day continues to count everything. His ethnicity, his pursuit of the law, And in fact, everything that you all live for. Everything. Now, does that mean it actually is rubbish? No, there's nothing nothing whatsoever wrong with being Jewish. There's nothing at all wrong with pursuing obedience to God's law. In fact, you know, the Bible talks about that. Counting and reckoning and ascribing. He's, he's got a context here. By comparison, everything is garbage. You get the point. He's trying to make an extreme statement. One that it's difficult for us to connect with because we don't really believe him. It's all 
I thought I had a life. And I thought there were things worth pursuing here. And I thought there were things that would, would gain me credit before God, but even be, beyond that, just stuff that was worthy and, and desirable and good. And I was, I had it totally wrong. It's all a loss. That's his negative, which is then followed three different times by the positive affirmation. Don't do this. This is a loss. This is not good. It's followed repeatedly by Christ. Christ is all over this passage. It's all rubbish by comparison. Verse 7 for the sake of Christ, in verse 8, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I suffer all this as loss and rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. It's all by comparison to Christ. The positive affirmation of the, of the passage is don't do this, don't place confidence in that, don't pursue that, because Jesus, confidence in him, pursuing him, giving your life to him, living for him, he, by comparison, ah, Jesus infinitely more valuable, the greatest treasure you can possibly imagine. And so he has this clear, great not, yes, no, wonderful rubbish, this clear contrast, surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Christ is better than anything else you can know or you can have or you can pursue or you can rely on. That is true. To go one step further, he means to say more than that, in fact. It would be easy to look at this and see only good-bad, gain-loss. To see only, compared to Christ, who is of infinitely valuable worth, and this stuff pales in comparison. It would be easy to see it only as that, and that, that is true, and he does mean to say that, but he means to say more than that. It is not just that this stuff is worse than Christ, everything in life, it's that it is barrier to Christ. It is not just undesirable, it's detrimental, destructive. This becomes apparent in the very end of verse 8, the, the crescendo of these three Christ affirmations. He says, for the sake of Christ, in verse 7, and then the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, suffered everything for him. End of verse 8, the final use of the gain-loss language, we get a purpose statement. I count it as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. That's a purpose, in order that, so that. That's the reason that Paul has said these things, that he thinks like this, that he made a decision to permanently move something over and then in fact takes everything daily and pushes it over into the lost column in order to gain Christ. He is not only saying, so we have to realize and hear not only that compared to Christ, all the stuff that we live for and all the stuff we pursue is less. He is saying, and we need to hear and realize, all the stuff we live for, all the stuff we place confidence in, depend on, blocks us from Christ. 
He means to say, while your hands are full of all of this gain, you cannot grab hold of Jesus. Paul realized that and said, therefore, I throw it all on the street. Let it rot. I don't care. I want him. He is, if you will, he's the man looking at the field, Jesus' parable. The man looking at the field and realizing buried in that field is immense, incalculable treasure. But I don't have enough cash to buy the field. That's a real bummer because I'm going to hold on to this life. I'm going to hold on to all the things that I have. No, he said, I see, but if I divest myself from all these assets, if I move them all over to the lost column, so to speak, and I get rid of that, then I can buy the field and have room in my hands to grab hold of that which is truly the greatest treasure that I can even imagine. Jesus. I, I count it all as lost in order to gain him. What a tragedy it would be to hold on to the stuff that you have because it's good and miss out on the best. There will always be people. There will always be a world and there will always be an enemy of your soul and there will always be your own flesh, in fact. That will entice you to hold on to the things of the world and the things of life many of which are wonderful. But when held onto and pursued and lived for and depended on and relied on, pick, pick your word, keep us from, block our access to, fill up our hands with, cloud our vision of that which is truly most important and truly most valuable. Paul means to alert the church and to protect the church from such miserable loss by, by telling us about his own life and how he has come to conclude things and by giving us some incentive. He depicts something for us here. He, he in a phrase, tells us and invites us to think about why what he saw that caused him to reevaluate, to reinvest. It's in the phrase there the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You've got to read sentences like that or phrases like that, really, and not breeze by them. Uh, consistent trouble that we've been in the church for a long time, we were Christians for a long time, stuff becomes too familiar to us and we, we skip by, breeze by. There's something in that phrase and the twist in it that reveals to us why Paul grabbed Christ at the expense of everything else. Because he saw there is a surpassingly valuable thing here. To know Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is the one you can know. 
last time he talked about Christ Jesus the Lord was where? Chapter 2, he talked about Christ Jesus the Lord extensively. This is the Jesus you can know. So folks, think about it. How is he introduced to us there? Now, this was written to people who already know Jesus full well, so I have no problem reminding you who know Jesus full well. This is God the Son. Think about him. And, and everything that you see here, and everything you, that you hear here, realize it's all coming. You can know him. It's sitting right over here. This is God. This is God, the Son. The second person of the one triune God. You should, oh, may you never grow tired of this. This is God who for eternity past fellowship with God the Father, the full delight of God the Father, the one you can know. This is the Son whom the Father deeply loves, whom the Father finds to be a full, sufficient vessel to contain His joy and His love, to generate in Him admiration. This is the Son whom the Father admires and respects and loves. This is the Son who did not regard equality, that deity, to be something to be held on to, but in great Humbling, 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 humbling came to earth. Why? To get you. Do you remember? Talked about this some weeks back. He made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant to get you. And not just a servant, not just a man, not just dying, but dying on the cross. It builds towards that death, even death on a cross. This is the Son, shamed and humiliated, to get you. And from that place of lowly humiliation, strung up, naked, nailed to a cross, buried in a tomb, he has been, it says, highly exalted. He has come out of the grave and ascended into heaven where he sits on the throne. This is the one you can know. He sits on the throne, reigning. Can you imagine the power? Like we, you, you go someplace on this earth, you go to Washington, D.C., and you stand out in front of the White House at night, and you see it lit, and you think, man, that is impressive. You see a motorcade drive by. You, you see men with weapons and dark suits, and they're serious. And this is impressive. There's, a, there's the, the most powerful man on earth, the President of the United States. God the Son reigns. The President of the United States can't stop people from walking into his own house. He can't. Everybody gets in conniptions because we can't even... For crying out loud, we can't stop somebody from just running to the house. He 
reigns. And at the recognition that he reigns, everything, everywhere, anywhere, will bow the knee and acknowledge, Lord, the name of the Old Testament, L-O-R-D, Lord, that's the name of God, belongs on this Son because He is God. The one you can know. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. He is God Almighty. He is lovingly humble. He is sweetly saving. He is highly exalted and the twist, and He is mine. Christ Jesus, not the Lord, Christ Jesus, my Lord. It is audacious to say, my Lord, of this Son who reigns, He's mine? I know Him? Like my best bud over here, we hang out? Yeah. Yeah. Which does not mean that the exalted Son has become some domesticated, controllable best bud. Don't go there. That, that diminishes the wonder of this. What you join together, how you join this together is not by dropping him down several hundred notches to to our level so that we can hang out in the den together and call him dude. We put this together by letting our mouths hang open and be shocked by it. In other words, you can't really conceivably put this together. The Son who reigns and is highly exalted has also at the same time displayed His humble, 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 sweetly saving love to me to become my friend, to introduce Himself to me and become joined to in fact even dwell within me, to welcome me into fellowship with Him. No, that cannot be. Away from me, Lord. No, 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 no. Come here. I love you. I want you. You know me. I know you. We are in communion with each other. The surpassing worth of knowing this Son and not just knowing about Him, but knowing Him as mine, Christian, this, oh, I, I, I say that it should, but what I'm, um, what I'm doing, in fact, is saying, oh, God, may it flow onto your people like a river that blows us away, like a dam bursting, a mountain of water piling on us and carrying us far downstream, afloat, not in danger, but afloat in released joy. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Messiah, Jesus, this man, as my 
reigning God and known friend. He is the greatest treasure that you can conceivably imagine. He is who you were made for. Compared to that, everything pales in comparison. And in fact, compared to that, all the things that we hold on to are dangerous to us. They draw our attention. They water down our affections. They block our vision. Paul's working two types of two types of danger here. First, he started out talking about confidence in the flesh, the way we become right with God. And that should make us immediately think about salvation first and foremost. We're going to come to that in a second here. And then when he expands it to everything, loss of my whole life, then he's talking, I think, more to us who are on the other side already, who already are Christians and are, are wooed by the world. Both of those warnings need to be heard. Christian, you must make a decision. Not just once and for all, but every single day to count as loss. So as not to create in your own hands a barrier. To pursue Christ before and above all things requires conscious thought, attention to how you live. And some here probably, I don't know everybody here, of course, but some here probably need to think about this really for the first time. That you have, in, in fact, placed confidence in a whole host of things, anything is possible to place confidence in and say, because of who I am and because of what I have done, I am right before God. And in fact, trusting in those things has kept you away from Christ, who is your only hope to be right before God. That's what takes us to the second point. Here's the second observation. To gain Christ, we must stand in a righteousness received from somewhere else. To gain Christ, we must stand in a righteousness received from somewhere else. Not in one that we have attempted to produce ourselves. Verse 8 ends with that purpose statement, in order that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in Him. So what is pictured here, what Paul is describing here is himself as he's, as he's standing now in Christ. He has acquired Christ, gained Christ, and now is found in Him. 
And what, what's that like? What's that person who has, who has Christ and is in Christ, what's he like? Found in him day by day, and, and particularly at the end, you're going to find this person, Paul in this case, like what? What are you going to find him as? And he goes on to tell us, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, not having what I was talking about in verses 5 and 6. That righteousness that I, that I had before the law, that looking at me from the outside, the things that I have done, I have very, very, I'm a Pharisee, and I was a good one, I have very carefully combed through what I am to do, in what ways, at what times, in what situations, and I did it. That's all worth nothing. That's not what you will find covering me. You'll find a righteousness not like that, not which comes from the law from myself, because it's not actually righteousness in God's eyes. So, not that, but in its place I have, the person who's gained Christ, not my own, but I do have a righteousness. He's contrasting righteousnesses here. Let me talk about that word righteousness. It does not mean cool. Something's righteous. It's not cool or hip. What he means is right before God. It means in the eyes of a perfectly all-knowing, right-seeing judge, I stand clean, cleared, right. If you use verdicts from a trial, not condemned, but justified, pronounced righteous. I need that pronouncement. We need that pronouncement if we're going to have Christ. If we're going to gain Christ, the only way we can actually gain Christ, be found in him, is with righteousness. but not a righteousness of my own production, not due to my own pedigree or my own performance. If we're honest, a good bit of the time we really wish it was that way. Think about this. Self-righteousness a self-produced righteousness, the kind that Paul talks about in 5 and 6, comes very naturally to us. It feels very right. Mostly because we pick our categories and decide that these categories are the most important ones we write in, and I'm pretty good at those categories. That's why I picked them. And it keeps the whole thing in my hands. I've picked the categories and I've maintained control. Even if it's difficult, I really want that. Human beings really want that. We want to know, 
the mountain's high, but I know where the mountain is, and I know what I need to do to get there, and I can walk through it, and I can check off the steps, and I can attain, I can get there, and at the top it will be to the praise of my own glorious self-control, to my own glorious exertion, to my own glorious power, to my own glorious goodness. We are very drawn to that, which is why if you look at every other religion in the world, they all work like that. It comes naturally to us. It is attractive. Even where it is difficult, it is still inviting. I really want to be in control, and I really fear, we really fear, what am I to do? The answer being surrender. I don't know, I don't like that. I would rather be told what to do and decide if I want to do it or not, rather than give up my life to something else to someone else. There's fear involved in that too. And I'm not talking about non-Christians. I mean, I am talking about non-Christians. I'm not talking only about non-Christians. I have, I have a Bible study, uh, I think it's a nine-week Bible study put out by, if I remember correctly, World Harvest that has one lesson in it where they have made up some names to different types of self-righteousness. They, they made up some names and they briefly describe in a sentence or two for the purpose of talking to Christians about how we pursue a righteousness of my own doing according to the law, how we want to live in it and just instinctively do. So you've got things like in this, lesson, in this uh, Bible study, Holiness righteousness, which they explain as, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do, and I'm appalled. This is the problem with the church today. Nobody cares enough about being holy. That's their description of it. Now, are we supposed to be holy? Of course, yeah. That's not the problem. The problem is, I take this, I place confidence in it. I say, you know, I am pretty good at not drinking, smoking, chewing, and going with girls who do. I have arrived, so I'm going to carefully pick that one and say this is what makes a person, would make you if you all get in line, what, what makes a person acceptable and pleasing to God. And I've done it. Or, you get financial righteousness. I give generously and save studiously. I avoid debt completely. That's the problem with so many American Christians who don't value God's resources like I do and instead are addicted to American consumerism and materialism. Are there American Christians addicted to... Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Are we to give generously? Of course. Again, the problem is I've picked... I, I have, I'm very self-controlled of my money. I've picked that as the thing that pleases God and that renders me okay before him. And would you, too, if you'd get in line and not be so materialistic? Or perhaps there might be compassion righteousness. I care for people. I love them like Jesus does. That's the problem with other people. They just care about themselves. Etc., etc. That's written for Christians so that Christians can understand, this is how I'm working. Not, and, and, and carefully here, 
If you're a genuine Christian, you do not actually think that if I give money at church, therefore I will go to heaven. If you're a Christian, you don't think like that. So it might be easy for you to say, that's not me. I'm not relying on that kind of righteousness. That's not the point. The point is, what you think makes you okay and pleasing before God. And you can find that by asking yourself, what do I most pay attention to, most pride myself on, criticize other Christians most for? In other words, what do I think I stand up and do this with? What do I count as gain in my life? And there you found your self-righteousness. Oftentimes, then, it's a criticism to other people. Not always, but, but often it's what I, what I find, I'm, I'm pleasing to God with this because of this or because of not that. I, I do this or avoid that. This is so commonly, it's sub-Christian, but it is commonly the Christian existence. We want the list, and we often pick things that we are accomplished in and think we have under control, think we have under control, and then decide, that's what I will do, and therefore that's what makes me right with God. And that becomes the stuff you hold in your hand that keeps you away from surrender to Jesus. You follow that? That's, that's really sad. And... And if you're not a Christian, it's really dangerous. If you are a person who recognizes there is a God and he requires something of us, the immediate, the very human, the immediate knee-jerk response is to look at what I must do to make myself right. And then you do the very same thing. You grab a category, one that you think you can, if, if you work at it, you can accomplish, and say, therefore, not just I'm acceptable to God today, pleasing to Him today, going to receive blessing from Him today, but I'm okay for eternity and you're not. Because all of this is just window dressing. It's all about what I do on the outside and does not address the weightier matters of the heart. It leaves us all at best as whitewashed tombs. Perhaps you have managed to shape up your financial or your caring or your holiness life, but few of us are able to be as pharisaical as Paul was. And even he recognized, I have a dead heart and I'm not actually righteous before God. Because God looks at the heart and sees that in my pursuit of my own doing, I have not set aside the Lord as first and foremost. No other God before him. But in all self-righteousness, I follow and I worship myself. This leaves you pursuing, perhaps quite strenuously, pursuing the things you can grab with your own hands and not forgiven 
You need a righteousness. We all need a righteousness before God, but it cannot come from anything that is according to the law from myself, but instead must be given. That's where Paul goes with the verse here. Not with a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. God alone gives. It is a righteousness from God. God alone gives. I do not generate. His speaking of the law to us in life was to show us what is right and good and where we fall short, to expose our hearts and to show us you cannot, you actually cannot Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Those are the commandments of the law. You don't do it. Heart, you don't do it. You need righteousness given from God, received by faith in Christ. Period. Which calls us, which perhaps confronts us, but also if you're a Christian, should release you and cause you to sing out with praise because it is not only telling me that's what I'm to trust in, the righteousness given from God, but it's also calling you to praise God has given what I need. He has given the righteousness that I need to get Christ, to get communion with this God. So what is this righteousness that comes from God through Christ? It is the righteousness that comes when the righteous one is killed in my place. I want to be real clear about this because some of us probably don't know all this, but there's only one righteous one who with his hands and with his heart perfectly kept the law of the Lord. That is God the Son who came as a man to go to the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring me to God. Christ the Son, he became a man, fulfilled the whole law with circumcised heart, and then died cursed on the cross. The righteous died cursed. With whose curse? With Mine. And I hope you can see, and with yours, if you trust him. He died with the curse of human beings on himself that he might give his own righteousness, his own perfect standing before God to other people. The theological word there is to impute it to credit it to our accounts. To where everything gets written as loss, he writes this single gain, the righteousness of Christ. If you trust him. Only trust him. It is through Christ, through faith. It depends on faith, not on your works. So none of us can boast. We're all left at the end saying, all I can do is say, 
here. I give up my life. I count everything as loss. That a righteousness from you can come into my hands, can come into my life. I give up everything else I was trusting and depending on. I believe only in your cross and your righteousness applied to me. To trust Christ like that is how you become a Christian. And Christian, glory and praise and thanksgiving and hope a glorying in Christ and a worshiping of the Father by the Spirit, that heart attitude and life coloring progression, a life that moves forward like that, colored with hope and with joy and, and rest, delight, obedience. He means for that to be yours. And how he gets you there is to invite you again and again and again to consider the surpassing worth of knowing him. To show you the, the emptiness of, of trying to pursue things in this world for life when Christ himself is available to you and ready to be taken. May God open your tired and tear-filled and stressed out and fearful eyes to see it and to believe it. Christian, Okay, I know it's 11.44. And I see the communion thing, and I know I'm late. And I know I'm 10 minutes late. So I'm kind of in a, a quandary here, you know. I should have been done 10 minutes ago. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and I don't, I'm not saying this because I want to like, I, 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 I don't want to do something like manipulative here. But, and I recognize, I, I mean, I've got to respect children's workers and but I, I will say this a Christian you must see this which is a, a helpless thing for me to say to you you must see this what I really wish to loop back into this what I really wish I could say was here are the things you can do and if you do them then you will be okay. You will be better off. You will experience more of. That ain't how it works. The whole point of what I've been saying is that God, God comes to you. Our posture before Him is I will, with empty hands, do this. I have thrown out all the stuff that I look to for significance and hope and joy and rest and acceptance and pleasing nature. And I, I, I do this. Come, please. And you must see him. So, so with, with a desperation, cry out to him. 
there is an ocean of delight that does not eliminate sorrow, but exists right alongside of it in this sorrowing life. There is an ocean of delight that would come to you if you would see this Son, yours, yours, forever, because of nothing that you have done, enhanced by nothing you will do, eliminated by nothing you can screw up in. An ocean of delight and rest and sure, powerful stirring to holy living. Not a self-righteous one, but a genuine pursuit of God believing His promises. It can be yours. He means for it to be yours. He wants to introduce Himself to you day by day by day. I mean, you already know Him. I know that full well. That's why I can say this to you. But he means to introduce himself to you again tomorrow and say, I am the Lord, yours. Rest in me, trust me, walk with me in delight through the heartache. I know, I know, I know. But I am great and I am in you. That can be yours. And everything else that I'm holding on to, by comparison, oh God, come. Gloriously, he has given you righteousness in his Son. The righteousness that you need if you are to stand before him clean and accepted and approved. Gloriously, he has given it to you that should cause you to worship and should then point you right back. He's the one I'm supposed to trust day by day by day. Place no confidence in what I bring to the table, but every confidence in him and what he brings to the table. That we would know him and the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings and attaining to the resurrection of the dead which we'll talk about next week. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word and help us to walk with you, to know you and to be filled with you. You are our hope, our only hope. So meet with your people now, Lord, as we take communion in our hands. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.